I hope you take a minute and stop and appreciate the message of that song, Great is Thy Faithfulness, because you think about that. Where would you be? Where would I be without that? I mean, we, we, I, I'd be so lost. We, I'd be so lost were it not for God's faithfulness. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to First Kings Children's Church. Thank you. Take a minute. Children, you can be dismissed. First Kings 17. <clears throat> One of the things that we as a leadership team here at Providence believe strongly is that every person who is in here has a ministry. You have a ministry. God has called each person to ministry, not just a pastor, not just an elder. Every person here has a ministry. So as you think about the ministry that God has called you to, something that is true of your ministry is also true of your life is that you go through seasons. Do you ever notice that? I think the Weather outside caught up with the calendar finally this weekend. But we go, we have seasons in weather, but we have seasons in our lives, and we have seasons in our ministry. I want to look at the life of Elijah today. We're going to cover chapter 17 through 19. Just do a flyover. I want, there's, I see diff, three different seasons in Elijah's ministry, in his life. But the one thing that remains constant in each season is God's faithfulness. And sometimes, depending what season of life that we find ourselves in, it's hard to see it, God's faithfulness maybe in the moment. But it's only that when we look back, sometimes we look back in our lives and see, oh, you want know God was so faithful. So, I want, to be, I want us to be able to notice that or see that just a little bit in Elijah's life and how God was so faithful to him in the different seasons of his life. So, pick up in 1 Kings 17, in chapter, the end of chapter 16, this is the setting where God calls Elijah into ministry. Ahab has just become king. I think probably Ahab and Jezebel are probably the the duo of Israel's history that we know really well. We learn about them when we're really young. But listen to how it describes Ahab in, in chapter 16, and then it does again in chapter 21. It says this about Ahab. He did more evil, he did what was evil in the Lord's sight more than all who were before him. Then as if following the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, were not enough, he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonian, and then he proceeded to serve Baal and bow in worship to him. So, not only did he do evil beyond any king before him, then it says he also married Jezebel, who brought in all kinds of idolatry and all kinds of evil into the nation. So, that is the setting which Elisha, or Elijah comes onto the scene. I put this map up there, and I'm sorry, you probably can't see it really well. Is there any way to maybe dim the spotlights where it becomes a little bit more visible? Um, 
But I just want, I want you to be able to just kind of get a visual of Elisha's world and where these seasons of his ministry actually took him. Thank you. That, that helps. All right. So you see, if you can see Tishbe up there, it's not certain. Other maps you'll see Tishbe is down here somewhere. So in other words, scholars aren't sure where that actually was. It says that is where Elijah, Elijah was from. So that's where he's from, and it picks up that in chapter 17. I want to read the first, uh, I think I'll read the first seven verses of chapter 17. It said, Now Elijah the Tishbite from Gilead, the settlers, from the Gilead settlers said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, in whose presence I stand, there shall be no dew or rain during the, these years except at my command. So there's his first mission. His first mission was to give a message to the king. And I notice the severity of the message. Not a message that would be fun to deliver. No dew or rain except at his command. And we'll see later it lasted for three and a half years. So it's a message. Your economy is going to collapse. There's going to be loss of life, all your livestock. There's going to be tremendous loss unless something changes. Only at God's command through Elijah will it rain. So there's his first mission. And then see what happens in verse 2. Then the, Lord, the word of the Lord came to him, Leave here, turn east, and hide at the wadi Cherith, where it enters the Jordan. You are to drink from the wadi. I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. And so he proceeded to do what the Lord commanded. Elijah left and lived in the Wadi Cherith where it enters the Jordan. The ravens kept bringing him food and meat in the morning and in the evening, and he would drink from the Wadi. After a while, the Wadi dried up because there had been no rain in the land. So the place for that is you can see this little pin right here. Right here is the Jordan River going down through here. Right here is where the Wadi Cherith some of your translations will say the brook of Cherith is. It doesn't tell us how long Elijah was there. It was really interesting this morning. We talked about meditation, and I thought in, in, in Sunday school, I thought it fit in so well. But Matt was describing how over in Kiev, there's catacombs. And in those catacombs, there's places where some of the, the religious leader or the priests would go into a dark room for years on end to meditate and to study. I don't think Elijah was here. Actually, he wasn't here for years on end. But it's like, my goodness, that there's, there's something in that, that whole idea of meditation that actually ties in really well with what God does here. Because I'm, I'm so intrigued by the idea God gives him one simple miss, mission. He gives him a message to deliver. This is right at the outset of his ministry. And... When we, often when we start something new, we're just full of fire, right? Just bring it on, all in, let's go. And God tells him, gives him one message, and notice what he does with him. He takes him to a cave by that little stream that feeds into the Jordan River, and he says, this is where you need to stay now. And he stays there, I don't know how long, but it must have been a while because he stayed there long enough until the brook actually dried up. There was no more water for him to drink. What was the point of that? What was the point? There's something in that and in the rest of chapter 17, because in chap the rest of 17, he goes to the widow who has no food. 
She is, she's out of food, she's out of water. And so that shows you the severity of the drought and how vastly, by the way, where she was from was way up, if I can get my pointer right, way up here. So down here is where Elijah's at. So the region, the whole region has been drastically impacted by this. But she has no food or water, and God says to Elijah, I'm going to provide for you through her. And while he's in, at this place in the brook, God says, I'm going to provide for you by ravens bringing you food. There's something in this where God calls him to something and then takes him to a place of solitude. I, I, I think I wrote it down in my notes that God removes him to a place of solitude because there's something in that where we learn and Elijah learns to deeply trust God's provision and not his own. Not his own ability, not his own strength, not his own passion, not his own power. But he de- learns to de- deeply trust God's provision and to trust God himself. So there's one season of his ministry. And then the next one we know oh so well, chapter 18. If you want to flip forward to chapter 18. Chapter 18 picks up, this is three years into the drought, it says at the first part of chapter 18. The condition of the land is dire. Things are dying. Things are completely falling apart to this extent. I'm going to pick up in verse 2 of chapter 18. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. The famine was severe, severe in Samaria. Ahab called for Obadiah, who was in charge of the palace. Obadiah was a man who greatly feared the Lord and took a hundred prophets and hid them, fifty men in a cave, and provided them with food and water when Jezebel slaughtered the Lord's prophets. Ahab said to Obadiah, Go throughout the land to every spring and to every wadi. Perhaps we'll find grass so that we can keep the horses and mules alive and not have to destroy any cattle. So they divided the land between them in order to cover it. Ahab went one way by himself, and Obadiah went the other way by himself. The king is so desperate that the king himself is actually out looking for a little bit of green grass just to keep his mules alive. So the the, the country is absolutely devastated by this drought. Jump forward to verse 16. So Obadiah, Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, then Ahab, he, Elijah was to go tell, or told Obadiah, go tell Ahab to come meet me. So Obadiah did that. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is that you, the one ruining Israel? He replied, I have not ruined Israel, but you and your father's family have, because you have abandoned the Lord's commands and followed the Baals. Now summon all of Israel to meet me at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Elijah, it seems like he's coming into his own. He's at his absolute best here. In the face of the king, he's bold and he's very passionate in the message that God has given him to deliver. And so he challenges the priests of Baal. He challenges, by the way, let me, let me point this out because this, this struck me. Do you ever notice how evil always puts the blame on someone else? 
but the righteous actually embrace and take responsibility for it. Ahab is the one who's responsible for the destruction and the demise of Israel and for the drought. And he blames Elijah, says, this is your fault. Elijah says, uh-uh, this is your fault. You're the one who has done this. So he challenges the prophets of Baal, and they go from right here, Jezreel, and they go up to Mount Carmel. And we know the story. We know the story so well. But we get used to it. Put yourself in, in this place and listen. Listen as I pick up the story in verse 36. Listen to what actually happened. So that the prophets of Baal have been crying out all day long, trying to bring fire down to destroy the sacrifice that's on the altar. And Elijah finally said, that's enough. Come gather around me. Let's see what the God of Israel can do. Verse 36, at the time of, for the offering, the evening sacrifice, the prophet Elijah approached the altar and said, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and that at your word I have done all these things. Answer me, Lord, answer me so that this people will know that you, the Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts backs back. Then the Lord's fire fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell face down and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. This incredible, incredible display of God's power, God using Elijah I call it the, the, the great showdown. It's just an absolute incredible picture of the God of Israel being shown to the world who he is and that he is the one true God. And he's using Elijah, his servant, to proclaim that to the people. So that happens. Then they go down to the Kishon Valley there. You can't see it on there, I don't think. The, Baal, the prophets of Baal are all slaughtered. Elijah goes back up to Mount Carmel, he summits it again, and then he prays. Seven times it says he prays, and he has his servant go look out over the Mediterranean Sea, see if there's a cloud that's coming. And the seventh time the servant said, look, there's a cloud. It says it's like the size of a hand, but it brings rain to the land. And Elijah runs ahead of the chariot from here all the way down to Jezreel runs faster than a chariot. It's something, something incredibly powerful in that. But what I, what I want, want us to recognize is I think what this displays is Elijah is at his best right here. He is being bold. He's being very passionate in proclaiming, standing up to the evil in his society, in the world, and saying and calling it what it is. You can't shift the blame. You need to take responsibility. And pointing the people back to God, and this great revival happens to the people of Israel. Flip over to chapter 19. Often when something like that happens, Elijah has expended just massive amounts of energy and passion into this. It's like he's laid it all out on the line. And then he gets this message in verse 2 of 19. So Jezebel sent messengers to Elijah saying, 
May the gods punish me so severely and do so severely if I don't make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. So all this work, this amazing thing that Elijah has just done for God, and he says, gets the message that you're a dead man. I'm coming for you. Your life is over. Do you ever feel like you've just poured it all out for God and then it just all comes back and falls flat in your face? It's like, what is the point? I gave God everything I had and this is what I get in response. And it sends Elijah actually in a downward spiral. Pick up in verse 3. Then Elijah became afraid and he immediately ran for his life. Notice the first time God removed him to a place of solitude. This time, he's running for his own life. When he came to Beersheba, that belonged to Judah. So, look on, the, look on the map here. Like, he's way up here. He comes all the way down to here in his run, flight for his life. It's like 200, 200 plus miles. He fights, runs for his life, and he sat under a broom tree and prayed that he might die. I have had enough. Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. Suddenly an angel touched him. The angel told him, get up and eat. Then he looked, and there were, at his head was a loaf of bread, and baked over, it was baked over hot stones and a jug of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord returned to him a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat or the journey will be too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Then on the, th- the strength from that food, he walked 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God, and he entered a cave there and spent the night. Elijah has fallen into a deep place. I don't know, some, some people would even describe it as a depression. I don't know if that's ever been a part of your life, I'll touch on that a little bit here in a little bit. Um, but Elijah is on the run for his life. He feels like he's given it everything he's got, and he's just done. Have you ever found yourself in that place where you're just done? Do you notice God's response here? We'll read more of it in just a little bit. But God's response was not one of condemnation to him. God sends an angel and simply gives him what he needs for today. That's all. That's all God gives him. Then he says, get up, and you go down to Mount Horeb, which, by the way, is way down here. Mount Horeb is the same as Mount Sinai. And I want to read, read the account of what happened here. So this is a little bit lengthy reading, but listen to what happens when Elijah comes down to Mount, Mount Sinai, or Mount Horeb, suddenly the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? I want you to think and remember that question. Why would God ask him that? What are you doing here? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of armies, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant. They have torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are looking for me to take my life. Then he said, Go stand out on the mountain in the Lord's presence. At that moment, the Lord passed by. The great and mighty winds was, t- was, tearing, 
I'm sorry, a great and mighty wind, wind was tearing at the mountains and was shattering cliffs before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire, there was a voice, a soft whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped him, his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he repeats the very thing that he had said the first time God asked him that questions. question. All I want you to think about, or want us to, to think about today, is in the, his depths of despair, God asks him the question, what are you doing here? But notice what God gives to Elijah. Here's, here's what I think is so powerful. Because if you think back, Mount Sinai, when Moses went up on the mount, mountain in Exodus, Exodus 19, you read when God came down on the mountain, there was fire, there was smoke, there was earthquake. God shows up in fire and storms and earthquakes and wind. He did it at this very place where Elijah is. But sometimes when in the depths of despair, what we, we don't need God showing up in an earthquake. What we need is God to show up in a still, small voice. Because that indicates there's an intimacy that God has with you. And that is how God shows himself. And he gives Elijah, in Elijah's depression, God gives him his presence. But not only does he give him his presence, notice Elijah said he's alone. I'm the only one left. On down in the chapter, it, um, God tells him, there are 700 more who haven't Worship Baal, who have kept themselves pure. It's like, you're not alone. One of the greatest traps that Satan can give us is this belief that when we're in this place where Elijah is, that, is that you're in it alone, all alone. God says, you're not alone. And the next thing God does is he tells Elijah to go find Elisha. He gives him someone to walk with. I'm just, I think it's so beautiful the way that God shows up to Elijah when he's not at his best. And it's easy for us to think. When you, so, so look at, look at those, those three seasons, if you will, of Elijah's life. So he has his, his, first, his first mission, but then God takes him in that first season and removes him to a place of solitude, a place where he's out of public eye. It's just him and God. And something in there is a preparation for his ministry. And then there's this great display on Mount Carmel where it seems as though Elijah is at his very best. And God moves just powerfully in his life. And then right after that comes another season in his life where he's just depressed, he's out, he's done. And in each one of those seasons, the one thing, the only thing, that remains the same as God's faithfulness. It's the only thing. And I think we, get, we can so quickly get caught up in, we celebrate in ourselves, in ourselves, 
and in each other and in our churches and in the great things, the, the chapter 18, the big showdowns when God shows up powerfully. We celebrate those. But we also need to celebrate when God takes someone and says, come over here to this cave all by yourself, just you and me. And someone takes, says, I need a season where I just need to be me and God, just us together. We need to learn to celebrate that and bless that because we get, we get so wrapped up in, what, in, in the doing end of things. We love when God shows up in big, powerful ways. We love when God brings revival. But it's often in those other places where God prepares us, our own hearts, into that. So let me just wrap it up. Let me wrap it up this way. <clears throat> the first season, I would say God is faithful in shaping us. Sometimes God calls us to those places of obscurity and solitude. And those are the greatest shaping moments, those greatest shaping times in our lives. And by the way, these seasons, they go in cycles. Sometimes a season lasts for maybe a half a day or a day. Sometimes it lasts for a year or two years. It, there, there's, no, there's no set thing to it. But there's seasons that we all go through. But in the midst of the season of God shaping us and preparing us for something, we need to embrace the solitude and that time alone with God where we learn to deeply trust Him. And God is faithful when we're at our best. We all have those times when we're like Elijah, when we're at our absolute best. In, in our, I'm using our, our terms, um, physical terms, made to describe it. We're at our best. We're, we're bold. We're passionate in what God's calling us. We walk into the face of the enemy, into the evil confronting our culture, and we, we confront it, and we point people to God, and God does great, and He does powerful things through us and using us. And God is faithful in those times. We feel strong. We feel energized. We're at the top of the game, if, our game, if you will, and we lay it all on the line. So then what happens when we get a Jezebel who threatens to destroy you? Because it's often at those times when that comes. But I want us to remember that in those times that it's God who's doing the work. It's important that we remember that because when, when powerful things are happening and we're expending so much energy, we can quickly start taking, maybe even unaware, credit to ourselves thinking, hey, I'm, I'm, God's doing some powerful things through me here. But it's God. Just remember that. It's God who's doing it. But he's faithful in those moments. But he's also he's faithful when we're at our absolute lowest. The faithfulness of God never, ever changes, whether you're at your highest or you're at your lowest. I don't know if you've ever found yourself. I'm sure you have, and if you haven't, or aren't there now, you probably will at some point. You find yourself where Elijah did, where you just want to say, I've had enough. I can't go on anymore. Depression is a real thing. It's not something we like talking about. We think perhaps in our, our churches, we tend to think that shouldn't be a part of a Christian's life. It's part of Elijah's life. 
And in the end of the book of James, it talks about how we are people. Elisha was a man just like us. So in those moments, in those moments, know this, that God does not condemn you. What he does is he offers you his presence. And that I, I was think about, I was so intrigued with the question that God asks Elijah. What are you doing here? God knew why he was there. Do you ever notice what happens when you begin to put words to the things that you're feeling when you're down in the dumps? There's something really powerful that happens when we actually begin to verbalize it. And so God wants Elijah to speak. And Elijah says, he's like, I'm all alone because that's what he's feeling. He's like, I'm the only guy left. I've given you everything I've got. But for what? When, you're, when we're in that place, all the bad is, looks massive and huge. And God looks really, really small sometimes. And so God, I think that's why he shows up and he simply gives him his presence. And he does the same for you and does for me. He gives us your, his presence. Not only does he give you his presence... He reminds you that you're not alone. And when we're at that place, God brings people to journey with you. God brought Elisha to journey with Elijah. And he brings people to journey with you. I'm just glad that we're not all at the same season at the same time. But we all have these seasons in our lives. They, they hit us at different places. Sometimes when you're at your best, you're the person that God calls to come along the side, the person who's at his lowest. All those, God takes us through these. So wherever you're at today, don't push, oh, how, would, how do I want to say this? Whatever season God has you in at the moment, embrace the season. Embrace the season you're in. It's easy for us to think we should just be, I should be out of this, I should be somewhere else. Whatever season God has you in, embrace it and walk in it. Because when God's season for that season for you is done, God will do what he did for Elijah. He dried up the brook and he moved him. He, God has ways that he moves us to the next season and the next season. But in each one of those, <clears throat> the God who calls you to your ministry, the God who calls you to follow him is faithful and he will never, ever abandon you in the midst of your season. So embrace God's faithfulness no matter what you're feeling or going through. Embrace that. I invite you to stand. We'll pray. Worship team, you can come on up. God, this morning, we realize how lost, how utterly lost we would be were it not for your faithfulness. Thank you that we can depend. Your faithfulness, the song that we sang, Great is Your Faithfulness, so, so powerful. And so, God, we we lean into you this morning. Whatever season that we're in, God, we lean into you and we trust your faithfulness because that is the solid foundation, the only thing that we can hold on to that gives us 
the hope and the ability to journey through the seasons we're in. For your glory, Jesus. Amen.